Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 1. Matthew, chapter 1. I'll give you a moment to turn there with me. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 17. This is the kind of passage uh, we might not expect someone to preach. It's a long genealogy, genealogy of Jesus. And we'll remain standing together out of honor for the Lord and his word. Matthew, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, 
and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. You may be seated. And as we pray together this morning, just want to mention that we'll be praying for one of the missionaries that we support, and that's Jenna Weisenberger. Jenna is serving in the Middle East, and so as we pray this morning, we'll pray for her and for her ministry as well. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that we can come together to worship you and also to pray. Thank you that you are the intercessor, uh, the, the one who intercedes between us and the Father, and Thank you that you hear our prayer. Lord, we worship you together now as the culmination of all of history, the ultimate point to which the universe was headed. All of these generations that we've just read about led up to the moment in which you, the eternal Son of God, burst into the world and took human flesh. Lord, we are just so thankful. We praise you uh, as our King and our Savior. You are the one to whom all glory, all praise, and all worship belongs, and we want to give you that this morning. Lord, we also thank you that you are the one who is gentle and lowly in heart, that you love us, that you care for us, that it brings you joy to forgive us of our sins and to see our sins washed away by your blood. Lord, we, we acknowledge that in so many ways we are not what we should be. We are weak and frail and stumbling and sinful. And so we, we uh, this morning, come again to the foot of the cross, and we acknowledge that we are desperately in need for your blood to cleanse us, to absolve us of guilt, and to cleanse our consciences as well. Thank you that for the person who's truly in you, there is no more condemnation. All sin has been dealt with on the cross. Our, our consciences can be pure uh, towards you, and we can worship you and walk with you and have fellowship and enjoy the life that you've purchased for us. Lord, we just thank you and praise you. We pray for Jenna as well this morning. Thank you so much for her ministry. Uh, and we, we just ask that you would personally encourage her and bless her and help her to draw strength from your word and from fellowship and communion with you. We pray for her ministry that you would use what she's doing uh, to accomplish eternal ends, that it would be very fruitful and that she would be able to even rejoice and see some of the fruit of that. Lord, we, um, we just pray that you would use the gospel as it's going forward to bring people from death into life and to bring uh, the people who trust you towards maturity. Pray for her and just for her encouragement. Thank you so much for uh, her faithful service to you. And um, we just ask that you would bless her in all that she's doing. Lord, we love you. Thank you that we can be together this morning to worship you. We pray that you would help us to understand how high and deep and, and wide how great your love is towards us. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.
don't have to cry out because you've bought a people for yourself. You've, you've made us your own. And Lord, because of that, we can glorify you. We can bring praise to you. And Lord, we want the, this service, we want our hearts this morning to be transformed by your word. And to the likeness of Christ, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Shortly before the cross, Jesus was sitting at the Mount of Olives, and he said to his disciples, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Jesus was saying that many false messiahs would arise, and they were to avoid such wicked men. Their nation rejected the true Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we celebrate at Christmas. This crucial part of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the God-man who died to save sinners that we might be saved, was born. And yet many prefer lies. Many would prefer falsehood paraded as truth. Sadly, the Jews to this day insist that Jesus is a false Messiah. Sadly, some people today claim they are the Messiah you got a guy in South Africa who says, God appointed me Messiah in a dream in 1992. you got a guy in Russia, and there's one in Brazil and one in Japan saying similar things. There's one fellow in Kitwe, Zambia, that I'm going to be going to Zambia in February, and uh, he has his disciples call him Jesus. So that's easy, is it not, to dismiss the fakers and the frauds and the lunatics. But then there are the lies that Christians tell themselves and believe and they're harder to resist. Harmful, self-centered, worldly ideas like if I, if I just believe enough and if I, if I do all the right things, God's going to give me everything I want. Or, or things like I am enough. Al Mohler put it this way, the self has become in the modern age a personal project. It's not I am enough. The Christian faith is largely about surrendering to Christ. It's about admitting your need for Christ. It's about yielding to his lordship. 
and leading in your life, and we are not enough. He is. We must contend earnestly for the faith once for all given, and the best way to combat the lies and the the things we tell ourselves is dive into the word of God that destroys every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And so this Christmas, what I want to do is invite you to, with me, reset your heart and your mind to resist lies and to rest in Christ, the true Messiah. His sinful family tree that we will see today highlights his singular identity. Next week, we'll look at his startling incarnation. The week after, his sinister opposition. Christmas Eve, we'll look at his spectacular birth. And on Christmas Day, his sovereign glory. Today before us, we have a genealogy. You open up your Bible, and you go to the New Testament. And the very first words of the New Testament, a genealogy. And Bible genealogies were a way of, of expressing theological truth, of making a theological point. And Matthew's readers would have understood this. And that these 17 verses tell us what Christmas means. This, this tells us what Christmas represents. Think about how many Christmas celebrations leave Jesus out of it. And, and I'm not just talking about unbelievers. I mean, that's kind of expected. But believers are like, I got Santa, I got the reindeer, I got Rudolph, you know, I got the snow, uh, Frosty. and Oh, we got to throw Jesus in. I got to put Jesus into the mix. How many Christmas celebrations of Christians leave Jesus out? And not just tacking Jesus on, but Jesus is celebrating him in your heart and thinking about who he is and what he does and letting that drive what you say and do. This list tells us what is essential to the gospel. It is that important. It tells us that Jesus is the promised sovereign and the perfect savior. He is the promised sovereign. He is the perfect savior. And Matthew, the Holy Spirit had Matthew, a.k.a. Levi, the tax gatherer, to, to author this. And he was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He, he wrote this before the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple in 70 A.D. He wrote it to Jews. He frequently refers to the Old Testament. He, he says over and over again, this was fulfilled this happened to fulfill what was written in the prophets. He was writing to any church that this gospel might go to. And, and what he does from the get-go, from, from the jump, is literally dives in to gospel. And he says, here is the gospel. The genealogy, the book of the genealogy, the origins, the genesis of Jesus Christ. We're going to focus most of our attention today on verse 1. Uh, we'll go line by line, word by word, name by name on Wednesday night midweek. And, and we'll touch some of, a lot of this genealogy today, but we're going to focus most intently on verse 1. Because if you understand verse 1, you understand Christmas. If you don't understand verse 1, anything you say about Christmas will be meaningless, will be nothing, and it, you won't get it. So this is really important. Matthew dives in with gospel information about Jesus Christ who is God, who came from God. Uh, next week, we'll look at the account of the virgin birth. We'll show the miraculous nature of his conception and birth. This is about Jesus at creation, created the world, brought the universe into existence, holds everything together by the word of his power. God has spoken through him, Hebrews 1 tells us. 
And his identity, his singular identity, is referred to by several titles. First, Jesus, Yeshua, God saves. Savior, the one who saves his people from their sins. The Messiah, Christ. Christos in Greek is a Greek form of Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah. He is the anointed one. All of Israel's prophets, priests, and kings were anointed. Jesus was anointed, all three. And, and this, is, this verse is, is like, and, and, and getting into these 17 verses is like appreciating a vast panoramic view, like mountains, just watching it and standing back and looking at the whole picture and enjoying it. There's this unifying principle that the God's purpose and plan of redemption is, is explained here, is exposed here, is revealed here. And this is the great message of Christmas right here. Here is the purpose of God in redemption. Here is what you need today. I don't know what you came today hoping to get, but this is what you need. You misunderstand this and anything you say about Christmas means nothing. This is not a vague general message. This is not generic. This is specific. It's about God's purpose. It's about his strong hand at work. This is what God announced at the beginning in in the garden after the fall, in Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelum, this is it. This is the gospel promised. And, you know, in, in, in Genesis 3.15, the gospel is promised that the, that the Messiah would be crushed in order to crush Satan. And it was repeatedly repeated over and over again in the Old Testament in many ways, as Hebrew 1 put it. And God kept adding to the testimony, kept addressing the testimony, kept announcing the covenant, that deliverance was coming, that someone good is coming to save you from your sins. And this is what Matthew deals with from the get-go. The background and birth of Jesus Christ. He starts, this is the book of the genealogy, the genesis, the beginning, the origin of Jesus Christ. This is his family tree. This traces his human lineage through Abraham and David. Josephus tells us that many families in that day kept detailed genealogical records, of family lines. Jews were into pedigrees. This is Jesus' patents of nobility. This is proof of nobility. This is, this is uh, the highly valued ancestral record of Jesus. Matthew gives the record of Jesus' family presents the line in descending order from Abraham to David through Joseph to Jesus. And he gets really specific. I mean, he gets down into the weeds. And it started in Genesis 3.15 that the Messiah would be crushed to crush Satan. And the promise kept getting repeated. The covenant kept getting restated. This agreement, this pledge, this promise, this covenant, where God said, you won't be able to keep covenant, but I will keep my covenant. This is the unilateral covenant. I will do what I say. And he kept redeclaring and making it particularly clear at certain moments in time over and over again. But two in particular, of particular significance, where we read these words, son of David and son of Abraham. You need to understand these two Phrases, these two names, these two titles, these are twin peaks, these are twin towers of, of gospel goodness, of the gospel promise. This is, this is the Christian Christmas message. Son of David, son of Abraham. To understand Christmas, you need to understand these two titles. That Jesus, his singular identity is that he is the promised sovereign and he is the perfect savior. 
that he is the anointed one. He is the long-awaited deliverer. He is the king. He is son of David, the promised sovereign king. And he is the son of Abraham, the perfect savior, the covenant keeper, the faithful and true one. The first thing a Jew would have asked, the first thing a Jew would have wanted to know about Jesus, is he a son of Abraham? Is he of the house of David? And so verse 1 just just jumps right in. Son of David, son of Abraham. And I'm going to follow the genealogy that way as well. Let's look at this first verse. Verse 1, Jesus, first off, is son of David. That he is the promised sovereign. He is the promised one. He is the promised king who will rule forever. And this gives proof that he came from a royal family line. That Messiah's royal family line started with David. And this shows Jesus' right to Israel's kingship. This is important. And so you, you see in verses 7 to 11, you've got David to Babylon. And you see in those verses that only David is called king, even though he's not the only king listed. Solomon was king, but not called king here, because he's not the one who fulfilled the promises to his father. No one was the fulfillment of the promised king of 2 Samuel 7 until the birth of Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. And you'll notice something, and it even says in verse, in verse 17, 14 generations and 14 generations and 14 generations. That is a, a bit misunderstood and a bit unclear. It, it's, it's to kind of give some, some symmetry to it, but there were more than 42 generations that were going on here from, from Abraham to Jesus. And the idea here is it's making the point. It's making the point that Jesus is the king, the rightful king, even though Jews will say today, again, that he is a false messiah. We believe the word of God. You look at verse 8, it says that Joram begot Uzziah. There's some interesting things in this genealogy. Again, on Wednesday night, we'll go into much deeper detail, but Matthew skips uh, three people, Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah. goes directly from Joram to Uzziah, or Azariah, and it's, it's, it's using gene, genealogical shorthand, basically. It's, it's a thing called compression. And it's just saying, like, we're just going to go kind of with the big names we need to go with here. Just like in verse 11, Josiah begot Jeconiah. It skips a generation between uh, Je- uh, Josiah and Jeconiah. And then you see the, word, the name Jeconiah. And, and if you know anything about the history here, you're like, well, there's an interesting dilemma here. Because there was a curse on Jeconiah that forbade his descendants from the throne of David forever. Like, what's with that? What this is pointing out is that Jesus was heir through Joseph to the royal line. He wasn't Joseph's son. He wasn't a physical descendant through the line, so the curse bypassed him. He is the righteous branch. He is the one who brings good out of evil. He is the son of David. And the son of David, calling him the son of David, was a thrilling renewal of the covenant. This this first was spoken in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David, the king, was eager to build God a house. And God says, no, you're not building me a house. You're a man of war. You're a man of bloodshed. Your son will build me a house. You won't build me a house. But guess what, David? I'll build you a house. I'll be building you a house, and it'll go forever. You were a man of war. Your son will build the house, but I'm going to build you a house. Your throne will be established forever. David's seed will be on God's throne, that the universal ruler and king eternal will come from David. This is what Matthew is showing. He is showing that the royal line 
through David and Solomon. You might say, well, what about Luke chapter 3? There's a different genealogy there. Well, Luke traces Jesus' line through his mother. It shows his lineage from David. And he goes through Mary in, in ascending order from Jesus going back to David, Abraham, all the way to Adam. But Matthew, what he's doing is saying, Jesus is royalty. He's confirming Jesus' royalty by showing his legal descent from David through Joseph. Not natural, but legal father. So he's saying that genealogically, he's perfectly qualified to take the throne of David. Matthew is tracing the line through David's son Solomon. Luke traces it through David's son Nathan. Matthew is establishing Jesus as the legal royal successor and rightful heir to the throne of David's kingdom. He even traces the line from Solomon to Jeconiah, who was the last surviving king of David's line at the time of the exile. This has very clear messianic implications. It substantiates Jesus' claim and statement to Pilate, where Jesus said to Pilate, you correctly say that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I came into the world. Yes, you're right. It was all promised in the garden, and it kept getting promised again and again and again, restated. Remember, here's a reminder. In Isaiah 11, we, we read that there shall come forth a rod from Jesse, that's David's dad, and a branch from his roots. It was a declaration of redemption. It was a restatement. It was a reminder. It was a, remember this. This is coming. Someone great is coming. Someone good is coming to save you from your sins. This is why Romans 1.4 says, this is the gospel concerning Jesus Christ, born son of David, and declared the son of God, the promised one. This is why the blind man cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He fulfills all redemptive righteousness. In Luke 1, it says that he will be great, that he will be the son of God, that he will be given the throne of his father David, that there will be no end to his kingdom. And this is the Old Testament promise being realized, being seen for what it was, that he would reign forever. In Daniel, there are two great kingdoms, and they they look invincible. They look like no one can conquer them. And they're all conquered because none is greater than God's kingdom. They're, there's a stone that looked common. And it, it was the Lord. And, and it was lowly. And it was unexpected. But it became a mountain. It smashed all fakes. Because before Christ, kingdoms crumble. And kings bow down. He conquers all. Which is of great comfort to the believer today. In Psalm 2, we, we read of one king to rule them all. Kiss the son, believe in the son while there is time. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of all. In, Re in Revelation 5, you see a scroll that is sealed that can only be opened by the lion of the tribe of Judah, the promised one, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, the, the king over all, the conqueror, who will rule and reign forever. This is what Matthew is emphasizing when he says, son of David. He is royal. This savior is royal. Jesus is sovereign king. This is why Matthew's gospel is just 
littered with kingdom wording. Kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God has come upon you. The Son of Man is coming in his kingdom. Your kingdom come. Jesus speaks of his Father's kingdom. And, and Matthew's gospel concludes with Jesus saying, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am the king of all. You think in the Bible of kings, and some were good and some were bad. You think of earthly rulers, some are good, some are bad. God is the good and kind, true king. Jesus is the promised sovereign, one king to rule them all, the precious king. If you look in, in Peter's letters, in First and Second Peter, you'll notice the word precious used for, for things are called precious. First is, is the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. We're, we're, we are redeemed with precious blood, valuable blood. Our faith is called precious. Our faith is more precious than gold that perishes. And, and Christ, above all, is called precious, the valuable one. And God's promises are called precious. He has given us great and precious promises because he loves us so deeply and you have something to hope for, dear believer. You have something that will, will take you through your darkest night, that you have the best. You, you get eternal life in Christ. You have his presence. You have his promise return. You have the hope of heaven. You know what's greater than the promise? It's fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. And every promise that he has made up to this moment has been kept. And every promise that we are still waiting for a future will be kept. When we say he is the promised sovereign, when we say, we say it a lot in Christian circles, God is sovereign. And we usually say it in this way. Well, I'm going through this really tough time, but, and I don't understand it all, but, and I'm in pain, but God is sovereign and, and he's in control and, and we're right but what you have to first realize is that God is the sovereign, the king of the universe, the king over all. That's why we rightly say that he will sovereignly work all things after the counsel of his will. That he, when we say God is sovereign, we're saying that God is the supreme ruler over all who has supreme power. He possesses supreme power because he is the supreme ruler. In those days, everyone was looking for a leader. Today, everyone's looking for a leader. Everyone wants someone to lead them. And here, the king has come, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the everlasting eternal ruler. Have you bowed before this ruler? Have you bowed your heart before this ruler? Have you yielded to this ruler? Have you, have you said, my life is yours? I, I, I have ruined my life. My sin is beyond is beyond what I can bear, and I know that Jesus died for my sin in my place. The king of all was born in Bethlehem, lived the perfect life, died my death in my place, was buried, rose from the dead, is coming again with judgment for those who refuse him and eternal life for those who believe. Have you bowed before this king? And are you bowing your life before him now? If not, Christmas means nothing to you. Might be sentimental. Might have traditions. Might enjoy some good food. But your soul is empty. It is bereft of hope. Have you bowed to this king, Jesus, the promised sovereign, the son of David,
promised sovereign who would reign forever. This is his singular identity, and, and it leads us right to the next title, the son of Abraham. Son of David, sovereign king who rule forever, and son of Abraham, signifying he is the perfect savior, he is the, the promised deliverer. His, his, his name, Jesus, savior from sin. David's name says Jesus was royalty. Abraham's name says Jesus was, was of the people of Israel and the perfect savior to save them from their sins. Son of Abraham, the perfect one, providing salvation. You have from, from Abraham to David, verses two to six, and, the use of Abraham is so significant, so important. The covenant name Abraham, not Abram, but Abraham. It signifies the covenant promises made to him that in you all the nations will be blessed. He believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Justification by faith. He's son of David, promised sovereign kingly ruler, promised king reigning forever, but he's the son of Abraham, the perfect one providing salvation. We trace this further back in the Old Testament. The first restatement of the original promise was made to Abraham. God sent him to the land of promise. He said, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. He said, in you all the nations will be blessed. In your seed, all the nations will be blessed. And he's not talking several generations. You know, most of us are like, you know, I'd love to see my my kids grow up and have some grandkids and, and maybe perchance I will see my great-grandkids. And when God said, I will make you a father of many nations and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, he is talking about all the way to you and me who believe today and all the way to every single Jew or Gentile that will be saved until Jesus returns to restore all things. In you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You can't count the sand on the seashore. You can't count the stars in the sky. The, 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 the seed, Christ, will come. So from Abraham, Matthew announces, Jesus fulfills all of that. All of that, more than several generations. The perfect one provided promised salvation. The seed of Abraham would save, and he does. You have a testimony? You have a testimony of faith in Christ? You know. If you're a believer, you know Jesus saves. And you know he saved you from your sins. And when you woke up this morning, even if you felt condemned for your sins, you committed last night, if you're a believer and you're walking in repentance, you know Jesus saves. The perfect one provided promised salvation. The seed of Abraham would save, and he does. The baby born in Bethlehem was the seed of Abraham. In Galatians 3, it tells us all that come to faith are one in Christ, Jew or Gentile, because all the nations will be blessed in Christ. Jesus said, Abraham, rejoice to see my day. Hebrews 11 speaks of Abraham believing in the promise, believing in the one who would sit on the throne of God, believing in the one that would reign forever as God. And, and then you've got, in verses 5 and 6, these words. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. And then Jesse begot David the king. And, and what you'll notice as you go through this is this promised king is son of David, son of Abraham. And this genealogy is not exhaustive. It's general and topical is the best way to put it for Matthew. Matthew was not a linear, uh, line-by-line chronological type. That was Luke. 
But Matthew's making the point. And what you'll notice, even in, in this genealogy, several additional generations elapsed between Rahab in, jo- in Joshua's time and David nearly four centuries later. And Matthew's genealogy uh, continues to skip over several generations between well-known characters in order to abbreviate the listing, again, the compression. But you'll notice when it gets to Judah, he's singled out from his brothers because the messianic promise of sovereignty was given to him. Matthew must show that Jesus is a descendant of Judah. You'll notice Perez in verse 3. Mention is made of of one of Judah's twins, Perez uh, and Zerah. Then the genealogy is only traced through Perez, though. The Jewish tradition traced the genealogy, the royal line, to Perez. In fact, son of Perez was a rabbinical expression for the Messiah. And what Matthew is doing is saying, look, this is the Messiah. He, he goes in verses 12 to 16, you go Babylon to Jesus from the exile. You think, well, what was going on then? Well, not a lot of glory was being shown, but God was, is faithful to his promises, and he always has his remnant, and Zerubbabel, last character in Matthew's list, who appears in any of the Old Testament genealogies. But then you get to Joseph, Jesus' earthly father. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. This is very important, the, the wording change, the pronoun of whom. It's feminine, it's singular, referring to Mary. It's hinting at the virgin birth that we'll look at next week. But it is an important, crucial change in wording. Before this verse, it's, it was all be, uh, was born or was begat. It's used with the husband as the subject. For example, to Abraham was born Isaac, to Jacob was born Joseph. But that's not what it says in verse 16. It's not connected to Joseph. Only time begot is not used underscores the fact that Jesus was not Joseph's literal offspring. Establishes his claim to David's throne as Joseph's legal heir. You see verse 14, uh, 17, 14 generations. Significance of 14 is unclear, but Matthew seemed to be into numbers, and it was a Hebrew characteristic. And there were more than 14 generations. It's just this, this symmetry that we're being given, and and what, what, what the big thing you need to know is in verse 1. God gave the promises to Abraham. God gave the promises to David. And those promises never fell down, and those promises were never retracted. And, and this is why Matthew is emphasizing so strongly, Jesus is Lord and King, son of David, his work as Savior of all who believe, son of Abraham. And it was no strange phenomena. Certain people would say, oh, you know... This fake Messiah was born in Bethlehem, but he's been debunked. That's what Jews still say, by the way. They still say it. Jesus was no strange phenomena or accidental random appearance or occurrence. You know when someone just bursts onto the scene now, like let's just say there's an actor you like or a sports figure you like and a singer you like or a writer you like and, or a scientist you like, whatever you're into, and, and you go, wow, where did they come from? It's like, Seemed like they just burst onto the scene, and they're so much younger than me, too. What's up with that? You know, I can read and write and sing and dance. Why are they so, you know? And, and isn't it true that there are so many thinkers and poets and po- politicians and actors and singers and athletes, and they suddenly appear in a moment in time, and you think, where'd they come from? They didn't even play, they didn't play football in high school, and now they're, you know, in the NFL. What's up with that? Now, so many things like that are seemingly chance. We look, look at them, and we just get amazed. How many people are you amazed of today where you're just like, wow, you're following this one 
public figure. You're following this one writer or, or singer or, or uh, musician or, you know, athlete or someone you like to always listen to, what they have to say, and you, you go right to them. They're kind of your go-to, and you're so amazed by them, and it just seemed like they popped onto the scene. Well, a lot of Romans and Jews were trying to say that about Jesus. They're like, oh, he's a novelty. He's an accident. He's unforeseen. He's unexpected. No, not the case. He was expected. He is extraordinary. He is exceptional. He fulfilled God's great purpose. He is the message of Scripture. He is the message of Christmas. This is, he is rooted in the record of God's plan and purpose in redemption. Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham. The promise given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David. And God is faithful to his promises. He's going to keep all his promises. All his promises will come to pass, even if you think he's taking a long time. How many of you think he's taking a long time? He fulfills it all so he can forgive it all. God's redemptive purposes fulfilled so that he can forgive your every sin. As 2 Corinthians tells us, all the promises of God are yes in Christ to the glory of God. Most glorious truth of all, Jesus is the promised sovereign. Jesus is the perfect Savior. And the family tree was fatally flawed. Yet, faithfully chosen, just like you and I. Fatally flawed, but faithfully chosen if you're in Christ. The God's intended purpose, his glory in saving, will be seen. What you'll notice when you go through this is that every person in here was a sinner in need of a Savior. But there are some notable inclusions, some surprises, if you will. Five women. They didn't put women in in ancient, you know, Middle East uh, genealogies. Matthew has five. Tamar, Canaanite woman who posed as a prostitute to seduce Judah. Tamar reminds us of Judah's sins. Rahab, a Gentile prostitute, a harlot. Ruth, a Moabite woman. Her offspring was forbidden to enter the assembly of the Lord for ten generations because Moabites were recipients of a special curse. Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, committed adultery with David. The wife of Uriah reminds us of David's sins. And then you have Mary. Innocent, sinful, in need of a savior, Mary, who gladly bore the stigma of unwed pregnancy. Through Jesus' life, they were calling him illegitimate. And they used some pretty foul language to do it. And each of these and every name listed is a, 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 an exhibit to the, to the grace of God. Just like you, if you're saved, you are a testimony, a display, if you will, of God's grace. Mary Fulfilled Isaiah 7, 14, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and fulfilled God's promise in Genesis 3, 15. Galatians 4, 4 tells us at the right time, God sent forth his son, born under the law, born of a woman to redeem us from the curse of the law. And when you look at these verses and you look at these names, you just have to say, wow, 
God did all of this through all of that. Such a sinful family tree. If you're a believer today, and you think of your life, and you think of your testimony, and you think of where God has brought you, you have to think, wow, God did all of this through what he had to work with in my life. You have this unique appearance of these five wonderful women. You've got all five associated with scandals. You've got Matthew choosing not to highlight Jesus' connection to Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel, but instead he lists Canaanites, he lists prostitutes, he lists Moabites, because it was to remind us all of Israel's sin and failure. It was to remind us all of our need. It was to remind us all that we ought to be grateful that God orchestrated a family tree like that to spin to the Messiah the sovereign, sinless king of promise would stoop so low to set his people free. That he entered into our condition, that he is Emmanuel, God with us. What does Christmas mean? What does Christmas mean to you? What comfort and what consolation might you derive this season from this passage of Scripture. Let me point out two things that I think are of special attention and significance. Number one, God's promises are always sure. They're always good and right and true. They never fail. They're always fulfilled. They're great. They're precious. God keeps his promises They're personal, they are eternal. He will do what he said regardless of your circumstances at this moment. If you're a believer, you can know that Jesus is with you. That you can live with reverent hope. I think of John who leaned on Jesus in sweet fellowship during Jesus' earthly ministry. But once Jesus was risen in glory... John fell at his feet like a dead man out of reverence for his sovereign, promised king and savior. You think about those in Hebrews 11, and we call it the hall of faith. I would call it the promise chapter. Go through it and see how many times it speaks of them believing the promises of God, banking on the promises of God those kept by the promise of a sovereign king and a reigning ruler. You live by faith in the promises of God. As Peter put it, you do not see Jesus now, but believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You know, if one promise fails, God is not God. And not one promise will fail. Puritan Timothy Crusoe said, Promises, though they be for a time seemingly delayed, cannot be finally frustrated. The heart of God is not turned, though his face be hid. And prayers are not flung back, though they be not instantly answered. Some of you think that God is going quite slowly with regard to his promises. Some of you in your infinite wisdom 
But Abraham, Romans 4 says, did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, knowing that what God promised he was able to perform. Let me ask you, what's one promise of God? Believers, what's one promise of God you're clinging to right now? Think about it. What is it? In your heart, in your mind, in your soul, what is it that comforts you in 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 the weeping through the night? What is it that comforts you in the season of loss? What, what promise of God are you clinging to? And then let me ask you this. What, what of God's perfections, his attributes, his character, are you holding on to that thrills your soul, that you're reminded of, about who he is and what he does? You know, he works all things after the counsel of his will. Maybe it's that. Maybe you're, maybe you're holding on to that. You're saying, you know, I, I, I can't bear what's going on right now in my life, but I know that God works all things after the counsel of his will. Maybe you're clinging to the promise that Jesus gave when he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That Jesus said, I am with you always. Maybe you're clinging to his perfection in being unchanging, immutable. There is with him no shadow of turning, that everything is, is changing, it seems moment by moment in your life, but he is fixed. And maybe you're able to see then that even at your lowest, God can raise you to the heights of glory in relishing Christ, in trusting Christ. What makes me sad is that unbelievers cannot do that. They can only thinly cling to their own supposed goodness and their own ability to hold on. But the believer can give thanks to God for his indescribable gift. We can live on the promises and live on God's performance of those promises. What he has promised, he has fulfilled. His timing is long. I mean, there's no other way to put it. His timing is long. Things take a long time in God's economy, do they not? And you think of, you know, 14 generations, 14 generations, 14. Well, there were more than that. There were just long generations. And maybe to some people it felt like a wasteland. Maybe it felt barren. But, but Jesus did come. Jesus did come. With the Lord, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. Live on God's promises and live on his performance of them. A second idea I would just throw to you is this, is that God's perfections ensure rescue for those seeking forgiveness. Who he is in Christ ensures rescue for those seeking forgiveness. That he sent the promised sovereign, the perfect savior, the sinful family tree and the sinless savior. And and, and obviously, Jesus is the only sinless one in his genealogy, but I think what is certainly most jarring is how sinful everyone in the genealogy was. And, you know, if we wrote a script to, to, you know, bring on the, the promised Messiah, we would have written in more stellar characters. But God in his infinite wisdom had other plans. And it comforts me to know because I know what I'm like and you know what you're like. And every one of them needed him just like every one of us does. 
And his purpose in history is unfolding and through the generations. His, his perfect timing and plan in every generation. His sovereignty, his providence. He does all things well. Nothing escapes him. He values every human life. He opens doors that no one can shut. His purposes cannot be thwarted. Every family on earth derives its name from him. No one can say to him, what are you doing? And every name in here is a beautiful reminder that God is gracious, that God is merciful. Every person in here is a reminder that God is gracious and merciful. Jesus is the friend of sinners, the one who came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He chose sinners by grace to be his relatives. He chooses us by grace to be in his family. This gospel that we relish and preach is about Jesus, and this passage is just showing in great relief the perfection of Christ up against the backdrop of his fatally flawed and faithfully kept, preserved people. It illustrates without apology the sinless Savior had a sinful family that needed a Savior. They needed him, and they waited for him, and they pointed to him very imperfectly like you and I do, very imperfectly. But it reminds us of the truth. Everyone is sinful and is in need of the Savior. Jesus came to, to rescue fallen man, and it shows the need of every human being to, to run for refuge to Jesus, to experience the mercy of God or be swept away in certain judgment, to, to run to Jesus for refuge out of your awareness of your sin and its penalty and to put your hope in the Messiah, the true Messiah that the feeble humans pointed to, that we feebly point to, but as we wait, as they did, for his appearance, we would lean on the promised sovereign and perfect savior today that you, especially if you think he's taking too long, and as the psalmist cried out, how long, O Lord? I want you to remember he has not forgotten you. He will never fail you. He will not fail his church. He will not let you fall by the wayside. He will not let you be extinguished, abandoned, lost. Every Jew and Gentile that God purposed to save will be saved. And is it not true that Christmas is often a drunken party for a lot of people? Drowning their, their pain and they're not looking to the Savior. I was, I was on a bus recently. I found myself on a bus. I, I woke up one day and was going to take a train and I ended up on a bus. Wasn't expecting to be on a bus. It was not a pleasant bus to be on and it took a long time. And that's another story. I'll tell, I'll tell the whole story Wednesday night at midweek. But I'm on this bus and I'm hearing behind me a guy and a gal talking hey, you're home for the holidays. You going to the party tonight? Are you going to get drunk? Well, you know, it takes a lot for me to get drunk. I just drank this, 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 and this, and I didn't get drunk, blah, 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 blah. And then just foul language the whole time. And it was annoying. I didn't say anything. I just prayed for him. I just prayed for him. But I felt badly for them. I felt badly because I thought, that's all you've got. And Jesus is so much greater and, and isn't it true that Christmas is a drunken party for a lot of people? 
Yet if you are clinging to him, Christmas is, is soul settling. Christmas is soul stirring. That certainty exists among the uncertainty of your life. And that your sin can pull you away from Christ and it should drive you to Christ. You stand at the cross. That know that, that at Christmas or any day of the year, you can't do with Jesus just as you please. You must take him as he truly is. You must take him as he is revealed in Scripture. You, you can't reimagine him. You have to receive him. You don't bend the truth. You'll love the truth. And when you're reminded of your greatest sin, remember his greatest sacrifice. He buries your sins in the deepest sea that he can bless you beyond belief in spite of your heinous crimes against him. Because God acts in grace to save wayward image bearers. What if you were given a homework assignment, tasked to dream up a rescue, uh, a marvelous, merciful plan to rescue some shipwrecked souls on a deserted island. That was your homework assignment. What you would do is you would draw from the well of your experience of, of rescues, what you know about rescues. You would you'd have a hero. You, you'd have a crisis and then another crisis, and you'd have some mishaps, and there'd, there'd obviously be some people who perished in the process. There'd be some people working overtime to throw a wrench in the process. There'd be enemies along the way. There'd be pirates and storms. But the story would end with a rescue because your assignment was come up with a rescue. The outcome was never in doubt because the outcome was determined. A rescue was determined. And these opening verses in Matthew, they write, it's rightly called the book of the origins and the birth of Jesus the Messiah. It shows that Jesus, the promised sovereign, the perfect savior, planned and miraculously conceived of a virgin, heir of David's kingdom and, and Abraham's promises, was sent forth from the Father to earth, to meet mankind's greatest need, to be rescued, to be rescued by a sinless Savior. And the outcome was never in doubt because rescue was determined. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. And he will return and reconcile all things to himself. And one day we'll be with him in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness perfectly dwells and there will be no more sin, and we will be finally free from its power and its presence. And, and this is what the true Messiah did. And this is what the true Messiah is doing. This is what the true Messiah will do. Praise him. And Lord, we thank you and praise you. Thank you that you have done, and you do, and you will do amazingly great things that we cannot even fathom. Let us think on these things and rejoice. That Jesus, you are the son of David. You are the son of Abraham. You are on your sovereign throne. Your saving purposes will prevail. You appeared. You are here. And you're coming again. We praise you. We thank you. And we worship you. Amen. Stand with us as we close singing. was lost in darkest night, yet 
As we go our way, I want to announce a couple things. Uh, there is a group from Grace helping at the City of Orange tree lighting tonight, this afternoon, uh, to bless the community. We are collecting gifts to bless the El Medina community. Uh, there's a women's event on the 9th. There's a men's event on the 17th. And we have a December devotional that follows the sermons for all of the 31 days of December. And as we close, uh, let me leave you with these words uh, as our um, benediction. 1 Timothy 1.17 To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign over